Let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 18. It's time for us to start another chapter in this great unfolding drama in the last days of the world. I am quite happy that we're through with the 17th chapter. Uh, There were so many upsetting issues that we had to deal with there. Uh, Chapter 17 is the rise and the fall of the religious system of Babylon. We've called that ecclesiastical Babylon. And it included just terrible atrocities that are committed against God's people, both in the past and those that are in the future. I liked it, though, when we looked at things like Babylon of around 600 B.C., and we were talking about that great 90-foot image that Nebuchadnezzar built, and he ordered three Hebrew children to bow down to that idol, and they told him that they could, Nebuchadnezzar could do the worst that he could possibly do, and they would not, nothing that he would do would be able to coerce him, them to bow down to the idol. And so Nebuchadnezzar told him he was going to cast them into a burning, fiery furnace. And I think we all probably cheer when Nebuchadnezzar had to admit that there is a true God in heaven. And that was a time when God decided that he would deliver his children. Now, they were willing to die even if God had not delivered him them, but God did. But there have been many other times when God has not chosen to deliver his people. And so they go through much persecution Uh, It doesn't mean that God isn't still God for purposes that he doesn't let us know about. Uh, Some of God's people have been vigorously persecuted. Uh, Sometimes that comes because of chastisement when God's people walk against the Lord as Israel did. And when they went into idolatry, God used wicked kings to chastise Israel. But still we know that God is in control. That, that's God who even takes wicked men and have them, has them do his bidding. Well, I suppose though the thing that really bothers us and, and I guess we would say shudders us right down to the bones is to think that there are many people that have served the Lord They've been very faithful in their service to him, and yet God has allowed them to be persecuted. They still served God even when they were fighting against a horrible apostate religious system that wanted to kill them, determined to destroy them. And we're sickened by this false Christianity that claims that they have the right to do this. They say that they kill in the name of Christ. They claim that they have the right. And they're really successors of old Babylon that picked up the idolatrous pagan ways of their mother, joined that together with an apostate Christianity, a foreign Christianity, a off-brand Christianity. And so they inherited all those murderous ways and they put people to death from the 4th century until the 19th century, killing people who are true Christians. Well, that went on for a great deal of time. And today the system still survives. And we know it as Roman Catholicism. And as we've seen, it still has the mechanism in place. It still claims that it has the right. It's ready to resume persecution at the first opportunity. And what Revelation shows is that Roman Catholicism will have that opportunity again. And that's when it hooks up with the Antichrist during the tribulation time. And with combined power, they control the world. So chapter 17 tells us about the destruction of that system ecclesiastical Babylon will fall, at least in that form that's combined with apostate Christianity. Roman Catholicism has been around for a long, long time. It's always been 
uh, brash and prideful. It's always tried to control governments. Many kings have thrown in with her because they felt that, that was the best thing for them to do. They felt they couldn't do otherwise. And so they have controlled much of the world for a great deal of time. And one of the reasons they do this and have been able to do it is because religion is a hard yoke to throw off. The disciples experienced that with the religious system of Jewry. It was very difficult for them to come out from under that system. You had the Pharisees and you had uh, the scribes. You had the Sadducees to some extent that they had a chokehold on the people. And cutting through all of that, uh, their lies and their deceit and cutting through all the fear that they put into people was a very difficult thing to do. And in fact, there were very few people that actually came out from under that old Jewish system. Very few of the Jews were saved. And those of you that are former Roman Catholics, you have experienced this. It takes a lot of fortitude to come out of that church. It takes the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit of God to cause you to do otherwise. It takes a determination that's given to you by God. Because when you have people that uh, are under the power of Satan, Satan is spellbinding. When you have been taught that the church has control over your soul, both in this life and in the life to come then it's a very frightening thing to chance raising her ire. And if it were possible that the Roman Catholic Church could physically punish you, that they could grab you by your arms and pull them out of socket, they could cut out your tongue and gouge out your eyes, they would do it. That sounds kind of harsh, but that's the history of that church. And they still say they have the right to do it. So chapter 17 ends with the destruction of that evil system. And And quite frankly, folks, I'm glad to see it go. I'm glad when it will end. So we come to the 18th chapter. Uh, Chapter 17 is the fall of ecclesiastical Babylon. And interestingly, God doesn't have to directly destroy it. The kings that tolerated these obnoxious ways and the thirst for power of the Roman Catholic Church are tired of sharing their power with her. And so they despise her, they chew her up, and they spit her out. But all is not as it seems... Because the destruction of ecclesiastical Babylon, although it will be gleeful at first, we can't forget the economic power that Rome controls. And destroying her is not such a good idea economically for the world during the tribulation time because the Roman Catholic Church has its tentacles and everything. Uh, Real estate, high finance, stocks, bonds, commercial enterprises, hotels, transportation. The Roman Catholic Church has tried everything to make a dollar. So they've done all of that, and they control more things than you can possibly imagine. So when the Roman Catholic Church is destroyed during the tribulation period, it won't be a good thing economically for the people that are left. Well, we look now in Revelation chapter 18 and verse number 1. It says, After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. I want to take just a moment for us to see where we are in this story. Uh, Chapter 17 takes place in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And during that time, the Antichrist uh, is a dominant force in politics, He uses religion as a springboard to help him to gain his power. He is a known figure. He is a rising star in the world. 
But it doesn't appear that in the first three and a half years that he really has enough political clout to gain the control that he wants, not single-handed control. But then at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years in, Satan comes into him, he possesses him, he energizes him, and through demonic power, all the demonic power that can mustered, this Antichrist then becomes a very powerful person. Before that time, he was much like other evil men. Uh, He tried to do as much evil as he could, to try to do as much wickedness as he could. But when Satan enters into him, then he has power beyond what anybody has ever seen before. No one has ever seen the devil full throttle. And that's because since the fall of man, God has the devil throttled down. And what the Holy Spirit does is that he restrains much of the wickedness that that, uh, Satan could do. And during the tribulation time, what will happen is the Holy Spirit removes those restraints. And this is what I think it's talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where it says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. He who now letteth will let. That means that the Holy Spirit at present hinders the work of Satan. But in the tribulation time, he'll no longer hinder that work. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not in the world because he is. It still takes Holy Spirit power in order to regenerate a person. And during those, uh, that time of tribulation, perhaps millions of people will come to know the Lord and the Holy Spirit continues to work and to convict whomever he will. But the Holy Spirit is not going to hinder the work of Satan like he does now. You see, the world could be a whole lot worse than it is if men were able to just live out the full depravity that's in their hearts. And we can only thank God that in the present time, God does not allow that to happen. And I think that the reason that he doesn't is because we have the church in the world. And so God protects his people. But when Christ comes again, he'll rapture his people out of this world. So the church will be gone And then the Antichrist will be turned loose to do the terrible work of the devil. Now, interestingly, I think there is an opposite effect that happens during the millennial kingdom because when Christ sets up his kingdom on the earth, then the Holy Spirit's influence will be intensified even beyond what we see working in the world today. At that time, evil will be locked down. And the devil and his angels will be bound. They'll be unable to tempt people like they do now and as they do in the tribulation. But the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as his regenerating power. And, and there's coming a time during the millennial reign or right at the close. Well, not at the, it's hard to say at the close of it because it's an everlasting kingdom. But right at the uh, last part of the uh, world's kingdom as the world is known now, the, the, the Christ kingdom as it will be known during that thousand years, uh, Satan's going to be loosed for a short time. And then the deception starts back up again. It doesn't take long before he goes out and he deceives the entire world. And so these people who have lived under perfect peace, who have experienced a thousand years of perfect government, they'll be deceived again and then they'll try to overthrow the righteous king. Now one of the things that tells us is that any candidate today that runs for office on a peace platform and promises that there will be peace... He's running after a fool's errand because there won't be any peace until Christ brings that lasting peace. 
But God's not going to let the everlasting kingdom be overthrown. He promised that there would be this kingdom, and Satan has seen his last victory. And so in the end, Satan and his angels and all wicked men will be cast into the lake of fire. And that is a preview of chapter 20. But going back to chapter 18, ecclesiastical Babylon has already been destroyed, and now God sets his sights on political Babylon. And remember, these are two kingdoms that are almost inextricably intertwined so that the destruction of the first by the ten kings will precipitate the destruction of the second in chapter 18. Now, amazingly, both of these systems are interested in only two objectives. One is to gain power, and the other is to increase their wealth. And so if you think that Roman Catholicism is about saving souls and serving God, then you are deliriously confused because Rome is about power. It's about money. Gain power over a person's soul, and you've also gained power over their wealth. And so you may wonder about the title of the message tonight. It's the economy, stupid. And that's what it's always been about. It's always been about money. And what Americans have done is we have bought into that same idea. And so if the glory of God is trampled underfoot by abortionists, by gay rights advocates, then you vote for them anyway because they might just be able to do something about the economy. You know, I've been asked a lot of times in forum class whether God can do with America what it says in Second Chronicles seven fourteen. And I would say first that that scripture is not written for Americans, but I can tell you for sure that Second Chronicles 7.14 will not happen here when God's people are so sanctimonious about destroying ecclesiastical Babylon, but they jump in bed with political economic Babylon. So who are we kidding here? I mean, how righteous do you think that you can be when you can help kings stomp out ecclesiastical Babylon and then sit on the board of directors with economic Babylon. But we look in chapter 18, and this chapter begins with a great display of the glory of God. I know you've been patiently waiting to get the first blanks on the listening sheet. So with a sigh of relief over the entire congregation, when the first blank starts, you know the end is in sight. So we look at verse number 1. It says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, And the earth was lightened with his glory. Another angel. Now, angels have surely been prominent throughout this study. And many people are very interested in angels. They struggle to find out as much about angels as they can. And so you find people comb the scriptures to find all the information they can and all the clues they can about angels. Well, let me warn you about something. You need to be careful in your search for angels because there are a lot of foolish eyes that float, uh, foolish ideas that float around. And the tendency for people is when they get too much involved in this and too interested in it is that they want to worship angels. And worshiping angels is idolatry. We're never told that any of the holy elect angels in Scripture ever asked for or ever received worship. Angels are God's messengers. Their story is God's story. And so they demonstrate God's might, his power, and his glory. And so here we see another angel. And the scripture describes this as the same kind of angel that we saw in chapter 17. It's not the same angel that was there, but this is an angel of the same kind. And I might also mention that this angel is not Christ, because sometimes Christ is referred to in scripture as an angel. In the uh, Old Testament, we have the angel of the Lord passages, 
And that doesn't mean that Christ is a created being. The word angel simply means a messenger. And that's why Christ sometimes is referred to as an angel. In chapter 10 of Revelation, we had a long discussion about this, the angel that appears in the first part of that chapter. And uh, we came to the conclusion that the angel there was not Christ. And so maybe you're wondering, well, why, why do we even talk about that? Why do we even consider that uh, this angel here could be Christ? Well, I'll refer you back to that discussion so that we can move on with this one from chapter 10. But this is another angel. And this angel appears, as verse number 1 says, after these things. And so that means that what happens in chapter 18 is subsequent to the events of chapter 17. And that's a very important point because it shows here that there is a distinction between Babylon in chapter 17 and Babylon in chapter 18. Some people believe that it refers to the same event. But there's evidence here that there are two events and there are two Babylons. Ecclesiastical Babylon and political Babylon are wrapped very tightly together. I mean, they're like two sides of the same coin, but they're not the same thing. And so when we look at destruction in chapter 18, it probably very closely mimics the destruction of chapter 17. Because when the economists in chapter 18 realized that the apostate religious system was integral to this gravy train that they have, then they'll weep and wail not only for the destruction of their empire that we find here in chapter 18, but they'll also weep and wail for the good old days in which they enjoyed economic success with this harlot religion. So this angel with great power appears, and he comes down from heaven. And the appearance from heaven means, or shows us, that this is an angel with authority. Coming down from heaven is a signal that he comes from God. And what he brings with him is the judgment of God. Now, we've noticed previously that when ecclesiastical Babylon is destroyed, there is no claim that God destroys her. Now, ultimately, of course, God is the one who directs that destruction using evil men. And the 16th verse of chapter 17 says there that the ten kings that are in league with the Antichrist are the ones that destroy her. But in this chapter, we don't find any references like that. This angel comes down from heaven, and there is no mistaking here that the authority is God's authority. And there is no mistake that Satan, the Antichrist, ten kings, or anybody else is behind this. This is God. And when God is ready to destroy, it works exactly like Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? No one dares question God. Now the Apostle Paul made that clear when he anticipated the pleas of those who would reject God's sovereign control over the affairs of men. And he said in the book of Romans chapter 9, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And here is where we certainly learn that we're nothing but creatures. Man controls nothing. Satan controls nothing. What God does is that he gives men and the devil enough rope to hang themselves. That's usually what men will do. It's what always men will do. 
just enough rope to hang themselves. So even when it seems that men are doing what they please, God can always turn that around and receive glory from it. Even the most evil designs that men have, God can turn that around to get glory from it. Because when he judges people in hell, perfect justice is exalted to its highest platform. And that's what we see here. Men in chapter 17 appear to do what they please in destroying this great whore. But in the very next scene, heaven opens up and God's glory shines through. And the, the earth was lighted with his glory. And that glory is a reflection of God's glory because angels never produce glory. Their glory is only because they have association with God. Then we also see that when heaven opens, that darkness is dispelled. In general, the world lies in darkness. And we can say that spiritual darkness is never as great as it will be during the tribulation time. And when the Holy Spirit enlightens men with the gospel, the Bible teaches that the glory of God shines into their hearts. But in this context, this does not mean people have been spiritually enlightened by this display of God's glory. God is light and sin is darkness, but what it's referring to here is that the physical earth, the physical earth is brightened a thousand times beyond the natural light of the sun. Now, some time ago, I compared the light of God's glory like looking to the, into the light of a welder's ark. You've ever watched someone who is welding, a welder wears a hood with a thick, darkened glass that he looks through, and that's so he can see into that ark as he's welding and tell what he's doing. And he does that, he wears that, so he doesn't damage his eyes. And I think that the light of God's glory must be something like that. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the Bible says that his face shone with the glory of God. He had to cover up his face so that people could look at him. And perhaps that's something like we see here, only this light is enhanced by the conditions that are upon the earth at the time. Now, if you look back a page or two into chapter 16, verse number 10, it says, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. Now, chapter 18 is during a period when there is a rapid succession of judgments that comes at the close of the tribulation. And so like a a mallet that beats against the kettle drum with a steady beat, 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 here God pours out one, one judgment right after the other. And the fifth one is a thick darkness that falls on the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, that darkness is targeted particularly at the seat of the Antichrist. That means the place from which he legislates. So here is Babylon, this city, sitting in the midst of this thick darkness when the angel appears and the glory of God shines in. Now, that darkness is so thick that it's a darkness that you can feel. In Exodus chapter 10, God sent that type of darkness upon the Egyptians There we read, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. I don't know exactly how it is that you feel darkness. But this must be so thick that there is not even a glimmer of light that penetrates it. Now, perhaps when you feel darkness, maybe that means a fear of the unknown, a fear of things you can't see. And after these people have been through so much during the tribulation period, can you imagine what it would be like not to be able to see anything? 
I mean, you don't know if there is a scorpion right next to you ready to sting you. You don't know if there's a poisonous snake ready to sink his fangs into you. It's, if you've ever been scared of the dark, this is what it means to be scared of the dark. A darkness that you can feel. So there is Babylon sitting in the far, thick darkness and the glory of God suddenly bursts through. And the eyes have no chance to adjust to that. This is what Paul saw in his conversion. He's telling the story and he says, At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And if you've read that story in the book of Acts, you know that when Paul was converted, this great shining light of the glory of God shined upon him and he fell down to the ground. And I can't imagine that these people would do any less than that. The glory of God shines around them. And then in verse number 2 it says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So now the angel declares the city destroyed. He cried mightily with a strong voice. Now today it's possible for someone to speak and with the aid of satellite communication that speech can be heard all around the world only within just a moment of the time that it actually comes from a person's lips. But I don't think this angel needs a satellite. He has a a mighty voice, a glorious voice. I don't think it's confined to this one location. It's a voice that's loud enough that from any place upon the earth this is heard directly. So nobody's going to tap the radio, nobody's going to peck at their iPhone and say, did I hear that right? No, they're going to hear right. No static interference. This is a voice that will boom out with the announcement of the destruction of this wicked city. Can you imagine if you heard an announcement like that? I mean, what if you heard tonight just a booming voice that came out and told you that the United States was about to be completely obliterated? On Halloween 1938, Orson Welles had a radio broadcast, and for about an hour, he came out with all these announcements that Martians were invading New Jersey. Now, maybe you remember this story is when uh, uh, the War of the Worlds. And there were people that were actually terrified by the announcements that Orson Welles made saying these Martians had invaded. Now, today, if we heard that Martians had invaded New Jersey, we would say, so what? I mean, it's as if they're not freaky enough already. So we probably wouldn't care too much. But with this shining light and a sonic boom, the voice of this angel says, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And that message is repeated for emphasis. And we can't actually see it here in our English version because we don't have the same Greek, uh, same verb tenses that are in the Greek. But what this has here is two special aspects in this announcement that we need to take note of. Two special aspects. The first is that the fall is spoken of as surely done. Spoken of as surely done. Back in verse number 14, or chapter 14 rather, the same statement is made. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now both times this is spoken as if it is already done or done before the fact. And Revelation often uses this type of sentence construction. Uh, You might remember that we noted the sureness of the coming of Christ's kingdom. In chapter 11, the scripture said there, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And yet when that statement was spoken, the tribulation had still quite a ways to go. The final judgments had not yet come on the Antichrist kingdom. And so this kind of sentence structure is used as a means of bringing hope to God's people. So many things have happened during the tribulation. There's been so much persecution. The two witnesses that God sent were killed. And this really brings us back to the reality that God has made a promise to establish his kingdom. And that promise is as sure as if it is already done. When you're going through tough times, when you think that these kinds of times will never end, there's always a promise that God speaks that's as if it is already done. I mean, you can cash the check of assurance already, knowing that when God says it, it is as if it's done. And so this is what the angel says in verse 2. Babylon the great is fallen. And then he repeats, is fallen because it's surely done. So the fate has been sealed, and like a flash, that city begins to crumble before their eyes. And that brings us to the second aspect of that statement. It is spoken of as swiftly done. This is not a lingering death. It's not a slow, drawn-out, elongated, slow-motion death. And that's what you see when things happen with the economy. When the economy starts to falter, it, it really doesn't happen overnight. Uh, you, you may lose your job, and if you have a lot of savings in the bank, uh, the bank account doesn't get depleted like that. Uh, you, you sit and you watch that bank account go down week after week after week until finally it comes down to nothing. It's a slow, lingering death, it seems. But that's not what happens to this city. When God destroys it, the economy comes down swiftly. And I don't know how God does this. There, I've heard many people that surmise the way that it's going to be done. They say, well, I think there is a nuclear explosion that occurs in the heart of the city and brings it down. I don't know if God's going to do that. God doesn't have to use bombs. He spoke the world into existence. He just spoke it, and it came into existence. And I have all confidence that he can speak, and the world will go out of existence if he so chooses to do. So here's Babylon. This great city, it's been the fruit of thousands of years of Satan's schemes. It took some time in order to erect this great edifice. But in a streak of lightning, the whole thing is vamoosed. In chapter 18, verse number 10, it says, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour thy judgment is come. One hour, that means it comes swiftly. And I do believe this is a real city that we're talking about here. Whether it's revitalized Rome or whether it's Babylon that's rebuilt on the banks of the Euphrates, whichever case that it is, this is a real city. And it's interesting, I think, how quickly a city can be built. How quickly uh, buildings can rise up and you can have a, a whole new city built. How many of you ever looked at pictures or followed the, the building of Dubai City? Anybody looked at some of those? This is really a fascinating place. What they've done is they've actually built islands out into the sea. Man-made islands in which they put houses and buildings in order to put everything that they want to put. I think I have a picture of that. At the top you see the city being built and all these little fingers that it looks like going out there. Those are all man-made islands where they put all the buildings and have people live. And it's just an amazing thing to see how they can build that city up. Uh, the world's tallest building is being built in Dubai City. It, the place has been called the largest construction site in the world. 
And it is simply fascinating how this one city has become a very powerful economic center. And so it's gone beyond the oil that actually gave it its start, but now it's a great economic center in the world. And there are also uh, many proposed buildings, some strange-looking ones. I haven't pictured the way you have it there. There's a very, some very strange-looking buildings that they propose to build there. And these are supposed to look like uh, the flame from a candle. That's where they got the idea. Now, there's an interesting thing that it says here in, in uh, chapter 18, verse number 23. When God is speaking about Babylon, he says, The light of the candle shall shine no more at all in thee. Now, I'm not trying to connect Dubai City with Babylon. I don't think they're the same things. But I just want to show you how quickly that a city can rise. And with a blink of an eye, God can destroy all of that. And it kind of gave me an idea when I looked at that picture that in the 23rd verse of chapter 18, perhaps that could even be what God is speaking of. The light of the candle, because when you get those buildings all lit up, Maybe they're going to have the same thing built in Babylon when it's here. So these strange-looking buildings that look like a light of a candle. And like that, God is going to destroy it all. Well, what does all that mean for us? Well, we have a lot more to go here. But what it means for us is Babylon's destruction is sure and swift, that God is in control of all things. God has announced his judgment that is coming, and there is no turning that around. And we need to praise God all the time that he is sovereign. He always accomplishes his purposes. He always does exactly what he wants to do. As Nebuchadnezzar said, nobody can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Thank the Lord that we serve the one who is sovereign. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time spent in your word tonight. And we are so grateful that we do serve a great God. Lord, we know that we can turn our lives over to you. And you take care of us, though we have so many difficulties, so many problems in the world at this present time. Yet we know that you have a plan and purpose for all things. And so we are content to follow you, to let your will be done. And we pray, Lord, it would be done every day, every single day in our lives. And may we continue to look for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's please stand.